Gluten is the family of proteins in grain that are designed to feed the embryo, but also designed to protect and preserve the life of the embryo. And so in animals, in humans included, these glutens cause disruption of the barrier within the GI tract, leading to a leaky gut. And so that's a natural byproduct of eating it. And this was actually it's been proven by Dr. Fasano at Harvard is that gluten causes leaky gut, even in people that don't have gluten sensitivity. Welcome back to the Essentially You podcast. I am your host, Dr. Marisa Snyder, and I'm here to help you rock your hormones and feel great in your body so that you can reclaim more energy, vitality, and joy and become the CEO of your health. Let's jump on in. Real talk. Gluten has been one of the biggest culprits to driving my autoimmune response, so it is no surprise gluten has been off the menu for many, many years. Now, for millions of us, gluten can drive an inflammatory response leading to joint pain, migraines, brain fog, digestive issues, thyroid issues, even fatigue, to name a few. Yet many of us, including our doctors, are not connecting the dots. And once you end up figuring out that gluten is a concern, like it is for so many of us, there can still be so much confusion around what it means to be gluten-free and how certain foods can have a massive impact on our neurological, digestive, and endocrine system. Now, to really break down the impact that gluten has on our bodies, I invited one of the most well-researched practitioners to break it down for us, Dr. Peter Osborne. He has treated thousands of people with severe autoimmune and chronic pain issues, and based on his clinical experience of all these people, gluten is always one of the biggest root causes. Now, before we get into the science of gluten and how it impacts the body, especially driving inflammation. I want to just turn the topic a little bit to celebrating a really big milestone on today's show. Today is our 300th episode with over 3 million downloads. I am so excited. I just want to take a moment and thank you so much for tuning in each week to gain more hormone literacy and to understand your body so that it's working for you in a way that has you thriving. Now, coming up this Friday... That's where the real celebration is going to go down. I am devoting an entire episode to the top 10 episodes of all time on the Essentially You podcast with a super amazing giveaway for subscribing and reviewing this podcast. I'm giving away Apple AirPods because I love those, especially for all the Audible books that I consume these days. And I'm giving away my best selling supplements from the Essentially Whole store. So mark your calendar to join me this Friday in celebrating this show that is fully dedicated to women's hormone health. All right, now that I shared the big announcement about our Friday episode and the giveaway, I am excited to sing Dr. Peter Osborne's praises before bringing him on to the show. Dr. Peter Osborne is the clinical director of Origins Healthcare in Sugarland, Texas. He's a world-renowned expert in the field of gluten and grain sensitivity and one of the most sought-after functional medicine doctors in the country. He's the author of the best-selling book, No Grain, No Pain, And he's additionally the author of The Gluten-Free Health Solution and The Glutenology Health Matrix. He has served as the Executive Director and Vice President for the American Clinical Board of Nutrition and on the Advisory Board of Functional Medicine University. He's been featured on Fox News, Forbes, Huffington Post, and many other publications. And he is joining us to really welcome us into an amazing masterclass that he has coming up that I will be sharing with you in just a little bit. Let's welcome him to the show.
Dr. Peter Osborne, welcome to the Essentially You podcast. How are you doing? How's Texas? It's it's hot, uh, it's, but I'm doing great. Yeah, it's super hot. We're having a really hot summer, a lot of rain. Yeah, but other than that, it's fantastic. I love it. I love it. Well, I'm so excited to talk to you today. You are my go-to expert on gut health and on gluten intolerance and really just understanding the impact that this inflammatory food has on the body. There are people out there that I know you know it that still don't believe that gluten is an issue. And so we're going to peel back the layers today. We're going to talk about the truth about this, what I consider to be very inflammatory food. Again, I think it has to do with a lot of the myths around gluten gluten. And I, I feel like those myths exist so people can eat it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you find that to be the case as well? <laughs> oh yeah. That, that's exactly why they exist. It's, it's like the, the urban street legends. These things are, are myths so that we could continue to have this behavior and justify it and, and, uh, and, and, you know, justify our pasta, you know, cookies, cakes, and pastries. Mm-hmm. That's, that's so true. So true, especially during this pandemic, especially I know we're almost on the other side of it, but goodness knows, I know a lot of people would turn to the pantry. We're baking more than ever, including my mom. And so I want to just speak into this. Actually, I'm just going to put, I'm going to throw my mom under the bus right now. I hope she's listening. Um, she, she, I called her the other day and she knows she has a gluten issue. I know she has a gluten issue and every occasionally she'll have a sandwich and she'll, I called her and she's like, Oh my God, I just woke up from this hazy nap. And I was like, well, what, what happened? She's like, I ate a sandwich. I was like, do you know that every time I'm like, actually, Tell me a time that you have eaten a sandwich and you did not fall asleep right after it in the last decade. And she's like, I every it happens every time to me. I'm like, you can't eat that. <laughs> that is a direct effect of gluten hitting you and having a major response to your body. Now, Peter, honey, tell me a little bit about kind of what was the impetus for you to jump into this beautiful work and educate people about the dangers of gluten and really helping to support their gut health? Yeah, I mean, my my background goes back to the VA hospital. I actually was was blessed to train in rheumatology at the VA hospital here in Houston. And so I had the, I had the advantage of, of seeing a lot of different forms of autoimmunity and seeing how those were being treated. So, you know, the typical autoimmune case, whether it's rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, psoriatic arthritis, would come into the hospital, and these were veterans. And they would be, basically, they would all be given the same drugs. It didn't really matter what autoimmune disease they diagnosed you with. Everybody pretty much got either a steroid um, combined with non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, a drug like methotrexate, or a drug like Plaquenil or hydroxychloroquine, which has become more popular, you know, because of COVID for pain management, right? And that, that's basically what it was. It was pain management until your joints were destroyed anyway. Uh, because ultimately that's what always happened is the, the people that were under years of pain management through, through disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs, ultimately their joints were still eroded. And so then they bring in the surgical consults. And then the surgeons would come in, they'd, they'd, you know, they'd take the x-ray, they'd, they'd pop the x-ray up and say, yep, you're a great candidate for joint replacement surgery, let's, set, let's schedule the surgery. And so here these, these veterans were being, in my opinion, they were kind of being railroaded, right? They were, they were being given drugs for years, destroying their health, because these drugs don't come without consequence. I mean, methotrexate, a perfect example, it's a cancer drug used to treat rheumatoid arthritis and it causes folate deficiency, but it also destroys the gut lining. It's known to cause leaky gut. So do steroids, especially when you mix steroids with non pain control, you get a synergism of gut destruction 
that, that is unlike any other combination of medicines. And so what happens, these people were on these medicines for decades. Their guts were totally destroyed. Their nutrition was totally destroyed. And now they want to do a full joint replacement surgery. And you don't heal when you do a full joint replacement surgery when your gut's destroyed because you can't get nourished from your food because your gut doesn't have the capacity, right, to, to, to extrapolate the nutrients, the vitamins, the minerals, and the other key components of food so that the body has the capacity to heal. So these guys would, would be drugged, then they'd get surgery, the surgery would fail, and then they were just kind of in this no man's land, right? We couldn't help them anymore. They're, you know, we're just going to manage your pain some more by continuing to destroy your health with drugs that don't really solve why you're sick in the first place. And that was frustrating for me. And so I, one of the things I did as a young green student is I, I asked the question, well, what do we know about autoimmune disease? Because that's what this is. And, and we saw the model to look and see if there's a connection between gluten and other types of autoimmune disease. And there were, there, there were hundreds of research studies on gluten being more common in people with rheumatoid arthritis, gluten sensitivity being more common in people with scleroderma, dermatomyositis, ankylosing spondylitis, psoriatic arthritis, psoriasis. And these were, you know, again, these were autoimmune rheumatological conditions that we were treating. So I thought, okay, well, let's, let's just, I brought this to the attention of my attending doc and I brought him the research and I said, look, let's, let's do a, a sidearm. Let's just pull some people aside. Let's do gluten-free diets and let's compare and let's just see what happens. What could it hurt? I was told, no, we're not going to do that. So then I went, I went back to the drawing board and I pulled a bunch of research and found that fasting could put autoimmune pain in, into remission in 48 hours. Like that's pretty fast pain relief that doesn't require medicine. And I brought that research in and I was told, no, we're not going to do that either. So I went back to the drawing board one more time and I found evidence that using higher doses of omega-3 fish oil, so like four to six to eight grams a day, was more effective at pain control and pain management than using non-steroidal anti-inflammatories and it wasn't dangerous, right? So, you know, when you use an NSAID, you destroy the gut lining, you cause vitamin C deficiency and folate deficiency and iron deficiency, but omega-3 doesn't do that and the body needs it. So again, I was told no. We're not going to do that. So I, I left the VA hospital pretty upset, you know, that, that, you know, here these were veterans that were just being railroaded and they weren't even open to trying something new. That was research already research driven. So it wasn't like, hey, I'm a, I'm a young green guy and these are my ideas. Please try them because I know more than you. It was, hey, look, your colleagues and your peers, your MDs, your PhD researchers have studied these things and researched these things and they have found them to be true. Let's, let's apply what they've researched, you know, and let's take better care of our patients or at least see if doing this could affect or impact them in a better way. And I was told no. So when I, when I left, I started my private practice and one of my very first patients was a little girl who had a diagnosis of juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. Her name was Ginger and she was diagnosed at the age of two because her knees were so swollen, she couldn't crawl with the other babies, right? So it was, you know, really impacted her to such a great degree. She had a permanent port embedded in her arm because she was in and out of the hospital so frequently for pain management and inflammation management. And so when her mom brought her into me, this is what kind of happened first. She, she got her diagnosis at two. They put her on methotrexate. She was in and out of the hospital for seven years, right? Her condition wasn't getting better. It was getting worse. Until one point, she was taken back to the rheumatologist. The rheumatologist looked at this little girl's mother and said, your daughter's going to die. She might have six months. You need to go home and plan for that. And so you can imagine being a parent, right? That having a doctor stare you down and say, your, your child is, is, is doomed. Your child is going to die. We've done all we can. And this is after we've medicated this child for seven years unsuccessfully. 
So when Ginger made it to my office, when her mom brought her in, it was an act of desperation. It was not, it wasn't the first, you know, I wasn't the first doctor, obviously I should have been right. And, and in the care today of autoimmune disease, doctors, you know, that practice functionally should be the first line of defense because the, the chronic degenerative medical model of blocking inflammation, blocking the immune system doesn't work and it kills people. And, uh, and it was killing her, it was killing Ginger. And so what, what happened was we, we tested her. I actually, I'd taken what I'd learned in the VA hospital through the research that I'd done there. And we, we tested her for gluten sensitivity in which case she came back positive. So we took her gluten-free. And within six months, we had the port out of her arm. And within 12 months after she was supposed to already have passed away, she was com- complete remission. Right. And fast forward 20 plus years later, she's now graduated college. And so this was this was my first start into the world of, of really diving into how impactful diet change can be for somebody with autoimmune disease. And so Ginger's story really prompted me to f- push this message even further and even harder. And that's why I started Gluten Free Society as a foundation. It's where we have free information people can go and learn about autoimmune diseases relationship with gluten. But that's that's how I got into it. It was, I would say it was an accident, but I think there was a grand plan. I, 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 I do believe in divine intervention. I was just blessed to be put in her path. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think about the 50 million people with autoimmune conditions, whether they're rheumatoid-driven auto, uh, rheumatoid-driven autoimmune conditions, or they're Hajimoto's, or they're endometriosis. You know, there's so many different variants of autoimmune conditions today where the immune system goes haywire for a couple different reasons. And you know, what is so heartbreaking is as everyone's listening to that story and listening to what is happening to these veterans. And by the way, you and I both know is still happening to. Them them every single day and happening to all patients that are going into the medical system with an autoimmune condition. They're going to be recommended these types of medications. What we know to be true, you and I, is that these do not stop, heal, or prevent that autoimmune condition from raging. I just want to make that clear, if that wasn't clear to everyone listening, is that we're these medications, how we're doing this isn't actually reversing or putting this autoimmune condition or any of these autoimmune conditions into remission. Yeah, no, I, I mean, if anything, it, it um, you know, most of the medicines today, the, the, the biologics, the new classes of, of biologics that have come out are cancer inducing. They have the strongest rigid warning from the FDA because they cause lymphoma and other forms of cancer. So you're trading you know, your symptom remission temporarily for the development of cancer, in which case we all know the outcomes for cancer treatment are just as abysmal as they are for, for autoimmune disease. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm so grateful about this journey that you had gone on. And I'm so grateful for the outrage that you felt <laughs> in, you know, being there with those veterans that this is the work that you're doing today. Can you speak into, because I know everyone really wants to understand that that connection between gluten and, you know, consuming that little bit of here, a little bit of there, what kind of impact is it having on not only our gut, but how is it triggering autoimmunity? And gluten isn't just triggering autoimmunity. It could be, it could be causing other levels of inflammation in the body as well. It's just one of the presentations or exacerbations of that issue. Yeah. I mean, gluten, if a person's gluten sensitive and they eat a little here or there, it only takes, you know, we have what's called the 20 parts per million rule. And that is anything higher than 20 parts per million with gluten can cause inflammation for as much as two months. 
So think about that. 20 parts per million is equivalent to a breadcrumb, right? It's equivalent to a drop of water in a gallon of water. It's not a lot. And that can cause inflammation for two months. So there are a lot of people that say, I'm going to eat healthy on the week and on the weekend, I'm going to cheat, right? So every weekend, especially if you have a pre-existing autoimmune condition, you'll never get better. You'll feel some better, but you'll never actually put that autoimmune inflammation into remission. And it's just going to continue to grow. And, and the average person with one autoimmune disease will develop seven of them in their lifetime because it morphs and it changes. And we also want to be very clear that autoimmune disease is the number one cause of death in females under the age of 65. And we could argue as well that autoimmune disease is, is actually the number one cause of death. And here's why. Statistically speaking, when we do death and we count, okay, how many people died from cancer? How many people died from heart disease? We clump all the cancers under one umbrella. And so think of that, you know, the cancers are different types of cancers, but we clump them all under one umbrella. The heart disease is there's different types of cardiovascular inflammation, but we clump them all under the same umbrella. And so we call heart disease, heart disease, we call cancer, cancer, but we don't call autoimmune disease, autoimmune disease. We call autoimmune disease by a hundred different names. And if you added all the deaths up from autoimmune disease, it would trump the deaths from heart disease or from heart disease and cancer. And so I could argue that autoimmune disease is the number one cause of death in the United States today and in other industrialized countries. And couldn't they trigger up those other two anyway? Yeah. I mean, inflammation causes cancer and heart disease, right? So if the inflammation starts out as autoimmunity, I actually gave a, a lecture a number of years ago on cancer as end stage autoimmunity. So meaning autoimmunity develops first and then over a lifetime as you, as that autoimmune disease erodes your immune system and destroys it, you actually develop cancer as end stage autoimmunity. And so very, very much so autoimmunity is, is linked into both heart disease and cancer and many forms of, of heart disease. For example, there are forms of myocarditis and pericarditis and atherosclerosis that are autoimmune in nature. They're now learning that diabetes has an autoimmune mechanism. So you know, we're seeing more and more of this autoimmune piece play out as time goes on and we learn more. Mm. That's a lot to digest. Let's just all just take a moment and digest that for sure. And I know in particular, you know, this is a, a widely women listened to podcast. And a lot of the women who listen to this podcast have an autoimmune condition or definitely know someone in their family that does. And so I just wanted to just speak into, you know, who we're speaking to right now. Now, when it comes to shifting the immune system, we know the majority of the immune system is in the gut. And we know that that is the most intimate relationship between the external environment in our body, in our bloodstream, and gluten being one of the biggest offenders. And I want to focus on gluten, but Dr. Osborne, have you found there to be other offenders that can light up the gut and potentially drive the same type of autoimmune response? Are there other foods that we should be mindful of? I mean, there are. And, and, and so, for example, there, there are categories that will say gluten and grains are a huge category of autoimmune inducing foods. And for some people, nightshades are a category of autoimmune inducing foods. And for some people, dairy and the dairy group can induce autoimmune disease. And for some people, sugar, well, not for some, for all sugar, which isn't really even a food, in my opinion, it's a processed derivative, you know, extract of carbohydrate from food, but it's not technically food itself. But then there's another old saying, like one person's food is another's poison. And so we always have to honor the uniqueness of an individual. And this is where oftentimes there's, there's kind of two ways to look at this. If you're struggling with autoimmune disease and listening to this, the very first thing that you can do is, is follow 
what I call the cardinal rules of nutrition, right? The first rule is you can't get healthy or establish health eating food that's not healthy. And that's the common sense rule. And, and I'm not going to belabor that because you know what that is, right? Coke's not unhealthy. Coke's not good for you. Snickers candy bars, not good for you. Cheetos aren't good for you. But rule number two is don't eat what you're allergic, sensitive, or intolerant to. And sometimes that's hard to know because you can have an acute reaction. And if you have that acute reaction, like if you're doing an elimination diet, you can remove the foods that obviously affect you. And you should, you're, you should be paying attention to those types of things. But some food reactions have a three-week window where they create inflammation and it's a subtle inflammation. So it's not like a super obvious response. And those are called delayed hypersensitivity reactions. And they're very common. As a matter of fact, Ginger, the little girl I was telling you about earlier, she was also reactive to blueberries. That was one of her major triggers. And every morning her mom gave her a blueberry smoothie. And we had to do unique testing to, to determine that, to figure it out, to really get her past the plateau uh, during her care. So delayed food sensitivity can be a major problem. And it's hard to, it's hard to tease that out with an elimination diet and, and testing is, is better served. And then the third rule of nutrition is just very simply, listen to your body. Your body speaks if you only take time to listen to it. Some people, you know, they say, I'm going to eat this and then I'll take my Tums or my Rolaids, right? Like, don't do that. That's your body's way of telling you that that food is a poison to you. And so if you suppress that symptom, what you're actually doing is turning off the alarm system in your house when you're being robbed in the middle of a robbery, right? And so that's not a good thing. You want your body to be able to recognize and tell you how to manipulate or change your behavior, including your diet, so that you don't end up with chronic inflammation. Real talk. Absolutely. Gosh, blueberries. Oh, yes. And that's, you know, and so many people, you know, I know a lot of us aren't testing. I, I have a elimination program because I have so many women who have autoimmune conditions or who just simply feel horrible. And it's, you know, it's just a, it's a 21 day. And what I found to be really fascinating is one, it feels too hard. It feels too hard for so many people to do it. Well, number one. And so a lot of people don't do it. And number two, it, what, you know, I think that 21 days is not enough time ever. But it gives people a window of what it could feel like if when they had removed all these foods. And, and my list includes eggs, dairy, gluten, all grains, all grains, rice, everything. And I know two of the myths here is a lot of people think that gluten is only found in certain, certain grain products and that you could possibly substitute corn and rice. And, you know, and, and I have found, you know, I know that is not true. And so I'd love for you to address some of those myths, but I have found that we've just got to completely clear the slate as at least a, a preliminary opportunity to really figure out what your body is sensitive to. And then slowly but surely introduce it back in. But you're right that there's a lot of delayed sensitivity that gets mistaken for feeling tired or brain fogged or moody, you know, that, that don't necessarily are associated with a gut issue or a gut intolerance. But can you speak into the big myths that a lot of people think that we can eat gluten-free grains or we can sub in corn or rice as an option instead? Because that's often what I'm finding people are doing. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if you're gluten sensitive and you try to substitute in corn or rice, you have to understand that, that corn is not gluten free and neither is rice, neither are oats, which is another one that are commonly labeled as gluten free, neither is, is uh, millet. All these different grains. So let's define what gluten actually technically is. And this was part of my journey was, was because what I would see originally in my practice was people would go traditionally gluten free, they'd go wheat, barley, and rye free. 
and they would feel better, no doubt about it. But then they would hit a point, usually within four to six weeks, where they would start feeling terrible again, and they would whiplash backwards. And so after after looking at what was happening, what I saw is many of them started to get comfortable with that gluten-free food aisle. They would go and they would buy the gluten-free oatmeal or they'd buy the gluten-free, you know, corn dog or whatever it was. And they start eating the other grains, the, the corn, the rice, the, the, the sorghum, the millet, the, the uh, oats. And ultimately, they would get sick again. What I did is I actually, I said, what, where, what do we know about gluten? So I, I started doing historical research on plant chemistry. And so what I found was the work of T.J. Osborne in no relationship. He's, a, he's, 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 he's considered the father of plant biochemistry. But he's actually the one who, who originally defined what gluten was. Gluten is the family of proteins soluble in alcohol from the seeds of grass. So if we look at the seeds of grass, corn is a grass seed, right? Rice is a grass seed, oats are grass seed, not just wheat, barley, and rye, but we have this limited definition in the United States based on, mostly based on celiac disease. There was a research study performed in 1952 at the University of, of Birmingham, Alabama, where they found gliadin, which is the name of the gluten found in wheat, barley, and rye. And they isolated that that was a culprit for causing celiac disease in 10 patients. And ever since then, gliadin has gotten all the glory. It's gotten all, or you could say it one way, it's gotten all the glory or it's gotten all the hate, right? But it's, it's, it's the one that's been the, the most studied and the most well-researched and the most blamed. But these other grain, uh, grain glutens have taken a back seat. And so, the, for example, the corn gluten is called zane and rice gluten is called orzanin and oat gluten is called avenin. And these are, again, these are alcohol soluble proteins that we know from studies, from research, actually trigger an inflammatory response in the GI tract of people with gluten sensitivity. Yet they're not listed on food labels as gluten containing grains that you can actually legally call them gluten free. So a lot of people will initially they'll, they'll, they'll go grain free, but then they'll find the gluten-free food aisle. And so they'll buy that gluten-free cereal, that gluten-free pasta, gluten-free bread, that's technically not gluten-free, right? And they'll start, they'll start using that as their primary staple foods to replace what they used to eat. And they'll start getting sick again. And so that's why it's a myth. It, it's, it's a myth because the government definition is wrong and they don't own it. They won't own it. And, and because they won't own it, the medical community is not going to own it, right? Now, when I, every time I talk to another GI doctor and they're like, well, corn is gluten-free. And then I show them the research and like, I had no idea, right? And this is the doctor, this is the entry point doctor that's diagnosing celiac disease and they have no idea, right? So, so that's part of why I started collecting research from all over the world, from great researchers, great PhDs, medical doctors who were actually doing this work. I'm not a researcher myself. I'm a clinician, but I was accumulating all the research being done and, and, and basically took that and put it into a culmination so that I could help people better find which diet they needed to follow, especially as it relates to gluten. Hmm. I have a feeling I know what people are thinking and asking themselves right now. You know, we, we're looking at you know, we, we, how we got it all wrong. And we're like, hey, there's this one particular protein that we found in a very small study, and that's going to get all the infamy. Uh, but we're finding that no surprise here that gluten is a collection of proteins found in all kinds of grains. Now, does this mean, because I mean, let's be honest, this is a staple of food source for everyone around the world. Is it safe to say that at least in, like for America, like Americans, I don't know all over the world and what kind of quality that we're working with. And clearly this protein's in all grass type of um, of grains, but that most of us need to stay away from grains entirely? Or have you ever found anyone who doesn't have a grain problem? 
No, but I don't, I don't deal in the general population. I deal in autoimmunity. So people that come to me, it's not, it's kind of a, think of it as a biased sample, right? I mean, I, I deal in people with autoimmunity and I've never met a person with autoimmunity who wasn't gluten sensitive. And I've done thousands and thousands of tests to determine that. So I feel pretty confident if you have autoimmune disease, you need to be grain free. And if you don't feel confident yourself in that, if you're watching this, you know, the best thing to do is to get a genetic test done to see if you have the markers for gluten sensitivity, because if you do, that's going to be the hallmark to help you understand a little bit more clearly with a, with a black and white that you need to get off of the grain, right? Because if you're, some people on the fence are like, okay, I, yeah, I feel a little bit better when I do, but then they think in their mind, that's just the glyphosate, or that's just the hybridization, or that's just the way the grain is grown, or that's just the genetic manipulation, right? And so they're using every other excuse in the world to continue to try to eat like organic Ezekiel bread and they're still sick, right? And because they're wrong, that's the whole thing is like, you know, a lot of people think gluten is a new thing. It's not a new thing. Like the oldest written description of celiac disease was 2000 BC, right? And we probably would find more, but you know, you don't find paper that old, right? So, you know, we know it's been around at least to that point. We also know that grain was nowhere near the staple food traditionally that most people believe it to be. Let me give you a little, a little history. Today in the United States, more than 50% of total calories in the American diet come from wheat. Okay, that wasn't true 30 years ago or 40 or 50 years ago. One of the reasons we're seeing an increase in the diagnosis of gluten sensitivity is because the, the diet has become largely gluten. So we're seeing more exposure earlier in life. Kids today, you know, if they if they don't breastfeed, you know, what are they given? Corn sugar formula. Most formulas have number one ingredient is corn sugar, right? So they're getting corn in their formula. You know, then when they're introduced, the first foods they're introducing children to are cereals, right? Whether it's rice cereal or oat cereal or a wheat cereal, it's the, you know, yeah, they're the dehydrated constituted cereals in the boxes, right? And you, just put a little bit of that in there. That didn't exist 200 years ago or 300 years ago. This is a new modern thing. If you if you look at United States history, 1943, the United States government banned the sale of grain. They banned it because it was responsible for more than 8,000 deaths a year. This goes back to in the, in the prior 1940s, pellagra and beriberi were rampant diseases. And they were killing thousands of people. These are nutritional deficiency diseases. So pellagra is vitamin B3 deficiency disease. Those of you, you, I know you know this, but for the audience's sake, vitamin B1 deficiency causes beriberi. And so people were actually dying because they were eating so much grain because of the, the farming. Okay, because in the, in the early 1900s, the government subsidized the growth of grain to save farmers during the Great Depression because we were worried about losing our food supply. So today, those subsidies still exist. Grain is, is, those tax subsidies are still in place. So grain is being grown to feed the masses, but that doesn't make it healthy. That's why the government had to ban the sale of it in 1943, because it was killing people. And our food fortification laws were created for this reason, because grain was so, so deprived of vitamin B1 and so deprived of vitamin B3. It was a very malnourishing food been to the level of killing people that that's why we have, if you look at a loaf of bread or if you look at a, a box of cereal, it has fortified with. And in 1943, Kellogg was a brilliant marketer. If you're familiar with the Kellogg Cereal Company, instead of saying, don't eat our product, it will kill you. They didn't say that, right? That would be bad marketing. What they said instead is, 
eat more of us because now we're fortified and we're even better for you, right? I have the ad from 1943 sitting on my desk as a reminder of that history. The people don't know that. So cereal's a new thing, right? Cereal was invented in the late 18, 1895 post created grape nuts, right? Prior to that, there was cereal was virtually a non-existent thing. And then Kellogg was a medical doctor. Kellogg had a brother who was a marketer. But as a medical doctor, he used cornflakes to irritate the bowels of his constipated patients. So cornflakes were being used as a gut irritant, not as this magic healing, miraculous food. But the marketing aspect of Kellogg's brother took that cereal to a whole new, to a whole new platform of, of perceived health. And then we went through this whole phase in the 60s and 70s, the granola phase, where cereal was being promoted very heavily. And this was all really government-induced. The government was subsidizing this stuff. They wanted people to eat it because it was food that they were paying farmers to grow and paying farmers not to grow. And so it was a commodity being traded. And so there was a lot of money involved. And, And people don't know that. But you go prior 1900, grain was nowhere near, nowhere near the level of consumption that we see it is today. So we just weren't seeing this level of of irritation and inflammation building up since, well, since babies are babies, you know, and now you've got 30-year-old, 40-year-old, 50-year-olds who are showing, you know, massive gut inflammation and then triggering up an autoimmune flare-up because the immune system is having to deal with the foreign particles in the bloodstream. And that's really what's happening with gluten, right? We're talking about major irritation of our stomach lining that's causing gap junctions that is leading to the immune system over overactivating. Would that be a general way of how this is working? Yeah, it, it is. And so th- I also want to just talk about it in a common sense way. Grains are the seeds of grass. What are seeds? If we look at the design of a seed in, in, in God's plan and Mother Nature's plan, a seed is designed to harbor and preserve the integrity of the species. That's its job. Now, seeds are inanimate. They can't, they don't have legs, they don't have arms, they can't pull a gun out on you and shoot you. So they have what? If they're trying to defend themselves, they have these intrinsic proteins, they have these intrinsic chemicals that are designed to stave off being eaten into extinction, right? And so this, this has happened over thousands and thousands of years, grains have dev- evolved as pro- these properties. And one of these properties is called gluten. Gluten is the family of proteins in grain that are designed to feed the embryo, but also designed to protect and preserve the life of the embryo. And so in animals, in humans included, these glutens cause disruption of the barrier within the GI tract, leading to a leaky gut. And so that's a natural byproduct of eating it. And this was actually, it's been proven by Dr. Fasano at Harvard is that gluten causes leaky gut, even in people that don't have gluten sensitivity. But interestingly enough, it isn't just gluten. We're, we've identified other proteins. There's a, there's a family of proteins called serpentins. There's a family of proteins called ATIs, amylase trypsin inhibitors. There's a family of proteins called GLO3A proteins. And these, these different forms of proteins are found in grain, and they're all proteins that are designed to protect and preserve the species. So how do they do that? They damage our guts. ATIs, and one of my listed ATIs, they're now showing that they activate something called a toll-like receptor, a TLR, in the gut. And we have lots of these TLR4 receptors in our GI tract, and we know that ATIs, amylase trypsin inhibitors, these are proteins found in wheat and other grains, can activate those receptors, triggering an inflammatory response in the gut, leading to massive 
flow of your poop into your bloodstream, right? And that's not good. When poop mixes with blood inside your body, you're being poisoned, right? And so, so that's one of the many aspects of, of gluten and grains together, right? We know they cause leaky gut. We know gluten does it, but we know it's not just gluten. No, exactly. It's not just, it's other particles, including poop particles. Yes. And I, you know, you, people hear that and they're like, oh my gosh, it's like poop entering into my bloodstream. And 100% that is exactly what's happening as, as these, like you said, as these seeds have these protective mechanisms in place. Hence, we have an immune system response. And this immune system response, you know, whether it's cellular mimicking or it, it's just trying to figure out what to do, it ends up attacking our joints, our thyroid, our myocardium, like all these different areas, our reproductive system, hence all of the dozens and dozens of unnamed and named autoimmune conditions. Yeah, absolutely. The immune system becomes so stressed out by the leakage. I always like to describe it as a soldier who's been at war too long. You know, if, if you've if you've been at war too long and people are every day, uh, every day you're on a battlefront and they're coming at you with guns, right? They're coming at you with bombs. Your first inclination is to shoot, right? It's to, it's to decimate the enemy so that you can preserve your own life. Well, your immune system, if every day it's on the front lines of the battle and your gut's got leakage of proteins and poop and all kinds of other toxins, that are leaking into your immune system. Your immune system says, shoot first, ask questions second. And then sometimes as it's shooting, it's hitting your other tissues, your other organs, right? And so your, your body becomes kind of the, the, the victim, if you will, of an immune system who has post-traumatic stress disease, right? Because your immune system is designed to work within you to protect you, not to destroy you. But when, it, when, it, when it's so overwhelmed for so long, that's where autoimmune diseases start to develop. Yeah, no, I 100%. And I know people are being misdiagnosed. And then once they're diagnosed, we go down the rabbit hole of what you described earlier in the show. So let's talk about, I know that you've got a masterclass coming up, but before we get into that, because I'm really excited to get everyone over there, the first step here is just eliminate the grains. Or do you think the, because before we can even get tested or some of us can afford testing or whatever that may be, can we potentially bypass the testing and just eliminate what would you recommend in that first step? Yeah, I mean, there's no danger. I mean, that's another one of the gluten myths is that, that it's somehow dangerous to avoid eating grain. We've been so brainwashed to believe that we need grain as a part of our balanced diet that we, you know, we don't know any better, right? Most people, but, but avoiding grain, grain is not an essential food group. And, and so you can survive plenty well without grain. I'd say if you're going to go grain-free without testing, one of the things you want to make sure that you're doing is getting other kind of starchy fibers because one of the, Probably the arguably the biggest risk for going on a grain-free diet is the starvation of the microbiome from fiber. When we follow people on, on celiac diets, one of the biggest nutritional deficiencies we see is just fiber. They don't get enough fiber. They eat too much sugar. They eat too much processed gluten-free food. They don't get enough fiber. So I'd just say there's no danger to going grain-free. Just make sure you're also maintaining good fibrous foods in your diet from non-grain-based sources. Yes. Well, and most of us are fiber deficient to begin with, 
what is the average person gets 10 to 11 grams of fiber per day where we need around 40 grams of fiber per day. So I just wanted to speak into that as well. So if the only fiber you're getting is from foods that are inflaming your gut, we're probably dropping down to like five grams. So good to good to point out and good to know. And that means increasing your squashes, maybe your sweet potatoes and your nuts and seeds if you can tolerate those and a lot of green leafy vegetables. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else we should consider? Like clearly there could be other in, other intolerances, other issues. Like you mentioned, dairy could be an issue. Clearly sugar is nobody's friend. We've done a lot of episodes on sugar here on this show. Everyone knows how I feel about sugar. Um, but you mentioned omega-3 fatty acids. Do you ever recommend things like probiotics, digestive enzymes, gut-loving foods, bone broth, those types of things to help start to heal the gut? Because it's one thing to eliminate the major contributor to the inflammatory issue, but it's another thing to actually begin to do the healing process. So there's two ways to look at this. Number one, I, I, am a big fan of, cause I'm a clinician. So I, I, I want to test people because I don't want to guess. So test, there's four categories of tests that I would encourage anyone listening to this with autoimmune disease to talk with their doctor about number one test for food sensitivity, the delayed kind because you may be eating perfectly fine food, but for you, it's not. And that could be one of the reasons why you've plateaued. Number two, test for chemical exposure. Heavy metals are very important. A lot of people had, you know, especially in the, in the 50 plus age group, grew up in the lead age, right? They grew up playing with mercury thermometers and lead in the paint and lead in the gas and lead in the toys. And so lead accumulation is a major player in autoimmune disease. So, so have your doctor check you for that and also check you for other potential for chemicals because chemical exposures are also triggers for autoimmune disease. Number three, check your microbiome and your digestion. You know, by checking your microbiome, you can get a better feel for, does that probiotic, is it absolutely necessary or is your microbiome already well positioned? But you can also get a better feel for whether or not you have overgrowth of other types of bacteria or fungi that, that might also be playing a role in the development of your condition. One of the most common things we see in the gut is fungal overgrowth. Like people eat too much sugar processed food and they feed the, the, the fungal microbiome and, uh, and the fungus grows out of control and fungi are, you know, they, they ferment. That's part of how we get wine, right? They, they turn great grapes into wine. And so if you've got your own kind of little wine factory going on in your gut, you're not going to feel energetic. You're going to be making your own alcohol, you know, and alcohol damages your liver, depletes your B vitamins, depletes your minerals. So Check your microbiome and make sure that there's not a major imbalance that you're dealing with. And then the fourth thing, you know, just fundamentally is check your nutritional status. Are you deficient in B vitamins? Are you deficient in vitamin C, vitamin A, vitamin K, zinc, selenium, chromium, copper, et cetera? And then you know exactly what you can target supplement if you need to. And you know exactly how you can change your diet. And you know exactly what foods you can incorporate more of into your diet based on what you're deficient in. So if you, if you, have a good functional doctor and you you might, that's a conversation I would encourage you to have. Now, if you're doing this at home, if you're just kind of do it, do it yourself at home and you're struggling, find a doctor. But if you're doing it yourself at home and, and you're not struggling and you're finding that things are, are being beneficial, there are some supplements that I would say I have seen be very, very helpful for people that when they're first going on and embarking on this. And one of the reasons with gluten sensitivity you know, we look at the average quantity of nutritional deficiencies in somebody with gluten sensitivity versus the average quantity of somebody with nutritional deficiencies who's not gluten sensitive. There's a huge difference, huge. And this has been played out in the medical research over and over and over again, but a really, really strong multivitamin that's going to contain all the B vitamins and most of your trace minerals 
because that's just a good idea to kind of give your body what it needs because you may have been being malnourished from what you've been eating. Omega-3 can be very helpful, very helpful for calming the fires. But the issue with omega-3 is you got to take enough. Otherwise, it's like spitting on a forest fire. You're not going to do anything. So with omega-3, you've got to get a concentrated formula with high levels of EPA, DHA. You want at least two grams. And in many of the people I see, we put them on four, five, six grams, at least initially for the first few months to really try to help, um, really try to help get a, uh, the inflammation piece under better control. Another one is vitamin C. Vitamin C is like human duct tape. It does everything. I mean, from supporting the immune system to heavy metal detoxification to cleansing the bowel and cleansing the gut. Vitamin C is just very potent. And so vitamin C can be a very powerful ally. There's actually some research that shows that people with celiac disease don't fully recover the inflammation in their gut until they add vitamin C at higher doses. They just need that at least initially when they're going gluten-free. So those are some key supplements that I would just say, look into those. Those might be very, very helpful in your journey. And of course, probiotics. And, and so where you have to be careful with probiotics though is, is one is dose. Most products don't contain meaningful amounts. So with probiotics and recovery of a gut, you, you need to look for hundreds of billions or more of colony forming units of, of a solid probiotic. Most products are in the millions or in the low billions. And so they're, again, they're just not super effective. That being said, you also want to look at, at the fillers in any supplement. A lot of the fillers, when you're buying your supplements, contain rice. A lot of your fillers contain maltodextrin, which is a, usually either wheat or corn derivative. And so if you're gluten sensitive, you have to make sure you keep a discerning eye on the fillers in your supplements. I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen people, they bring me in supplements that they've been taking and they're trying to follow a gluten-free diet, but their supplements are contaminating them and they didn't even realize it. 100%. That is so true. A lot of the filler is a gluten bomb that people could be taking or a corn bomb that people could be taking. Okay, great. So yes, meeting your those needs. I think that those are, I think most people are severely nutrient deficient, at least all the labs I always look at for my ladies. So I really appreciate. So get tested, find somebody who gets tested. Dr. Peter Osborne, I know you're, you're in clinical practice. And so we'll have infer- we'll have your information for your, cause you do virtual sessions. So I'll have that information, but that, that if you, if everyone listening right now is just wanting more of this, or if there's someone in their life, they're like, I've been trying to tell my partner or my sister or my mama, <laughs> you know, about this. <laughs> hey mom, you know, you have got an incredible masterclass that you've been working on for almost, almost two years now. And I'm really excited to support. Can you tell me a little bit about, about this masterclass that's coming up that we'll have the link for in the show notes? Yeah, this this masterclass is a culmination of, you know, 20 years of research and clinical work. And um, we take you through everything you ever thought you needed to know and more about going gluten-free from the, the myths associated with the gluten-free diet to the nutrition and the, and the specific nutritional needs of people with gluten sensitivity to the testing, what kind of testing works, what kind of testing is misleading and misaccurate, how to talk to your doctor, how to talk to your family members, how to travel, the sociology and the social interactions that you're going to have with people when you're trying to maintain your diet, how challenging that can be. I try to cover everything that everyone's ever come to me with a struggle about as it relates to the gluten-free diet. And we kind of curated it down into 10 modules and 14 hours of pure science and pure information so that and it's, it is free. Anybody who wants to sign up for it can and, and just go through it and watch it. And I would encourage you to do that. It's a passion of, of mine. 
to get this information out there. Because like I said earlier, most people with autoimmune disease, they're either going to go see an endocrinologist, a rheumatologist, or a gastroenterologist. And those three professions are not really trained in autoimmune disease. They're, they're kind of trained, but they're not trained to understand that autoimmune disease is not a hundred different diseases. Autoimmune disease is one thing. And gluten is the number one most well-researched trigger for autoimmune disease in the world, right? And it's still that way today. There are thousands and thousands of studies that show gluten is a trigger for autoimmune disease. And so if you're struggling, you need to learn what it means to be gluten-free in all of its nuances and all of its details. Because if you do it wrong, you might continue to suffer. And if you continue to suffer, you're, in your mind, you're going to think the gluten-free diet doesn't work. But in reality, it's probably going to be because you didn't do it right. You didn't do it the way that it was intended to be done. And that's what this class really helps people understand. Thank you so much. Uh, it's always a pleasure to get to have you on, just to get to have our conversation. It's been a long time since we've had a conversation. And I just want to say thank you for really just clearing up a lot of the myths and dialing, like giving us the history, giving us the real talk and really breaking it down to where we, I hope everyone's listening. I hope we're all like, we've got our ears open and I hope you all go over to the masterclass. I know we're going to be checking it out. And Dr. Peter Osborne, you are such a gift. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me on. It was, it was a pleasure. Yes, thank you. You know what I love so much about Dr. Peter Osborne is that he tells it to you straight. It's obvious that he is on a mission and his messaging is very clear. For many of us, especially those suffering from pain and autoimmunity, gluten is a big contributor and it's important to remove these gluten-containing foods. Now, given how pervasive gluten is in our food system and how challenging it can be to get rid of it, I want to recommend that you register for Dr. Peter's free glutenology masterclass. This masterclass goes into depth into what to look for and how to transition out of a gluten-filled diet. Now, I found that this masterclass was game-changing. So the link to register for free is in the show notes for this episode, which we all know is episode 300. Now, I want to say thank you so much for listening in today on the Essentially You podcast. This show, as always, is about providing tools to rock your hormones and to feel amazing in your body. If there's someone in your life that needs to hear this today, take a moment and screenshot this episode so that they have access to it. And if you share it on social, make sure to hashtag hormone literacy or hormone CEO. And as I mentioned earlier, this upcoming Friday episode is about celebrating the massive milestone. I just, I, pinch me that we are at 300 episodes today. It is so exciting. I will be sharing those top 10 episodes of all time on that show, along with the amazing giveaway and how to enter into that giveaway. And I'm super excited for all the prizes that we have as well. So show up, definitely take a look at what has done the best here on the show and also enter to win the sexy giveaway prizes. Until then, have an amazing week. 